0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called This Age, That Age, Sex and the Sadducees. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 10, 2013. Last summer, I read two books about sex. One was about all the bad sex in secular culture. The other was about all the good sex in the Bible. In the first book, The End of Sex by Donna Freitas, she questions the casual sex of our hookup culture. In hookup culture, kids have sex with a person they may or may not know with the explicit understanding that it does not include intimacy, emotions, or commitment. But behind the adolescent bravado about hookup sex, Freitas documents a trail of emotional wreckage. In her lectures around the country, she observes what she calls so much sadness among kids who long for something better. In the second book, unprotected texts, Jennifer Gnust objects to Christians who find a clear and simple sexual ethic in the Bible. She argues that it's a mistake to pretend the Bible can define our ethics for us in any kind of straightforward way. For example, sometimes polygamy for men, but never women, is taken for granted. David had seven wives. Paul and Jesus, on the other hand, privilege celibacy as the preferred state. Why is marrying a foreigner wrong? And why all those regulations about circumcision, semen, and menstruation? The Gospel for this week in Luke chapter 20 is one of the texts that Neust explores Jesus had entered Jerusalem after Luke's long travel narrative. Every day, Luke writes, Jesus was teaching at the temple. It was here that the religious authorities tried to trap him with trick questions about money and sex. Luke tells two stories that occur back-to-back in all three synoptic gospels. The first one's about taxes. The second one's about marriage. But Jesus never takes the bait. Instead, he flips the questions and turns the tables on us. Believe it or not, he says, there's something more important than sex and money. The first question comes in Luke 20, 22. Should Jews pay taxes to their Roman oppressors? Jews disagreed on how to answer this question. The pragmatic realists cooperated with Rome and paid the tax, maybe out of conscience or maybe as a survival strategy. After all, who wanted undue attention from Rome? On the other hand, the idealists of a more nationalistic bent resisted, resented, and protested Roman economic exploitation out of principle. The Pharisees, who despised Rome, and the Herodians, who actually cooperated with Rome, were opposing sects. But oddly enough, in this story, they joined forces. Luke calls them spies. They didn't want an honest answer to a complicated question. In the words of Luke, they wanted to trap Jesus in his words. That seemed easy enough to do. If Jesus answered the question, yes, it smacked of capitulation to Rome and renunciation of Jewish nationalism. Jesus would have lost his audience. On the other hand, to answer no and encourage tax dodgers was political sedition that would have jeopardized his ministry and endangered his followers. In fact, charges of tax evasion led to Jesus' criminal execution. Luke 23.2 says, this, my, this man opposes paying taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ the King. This trick question elicited a trick answer. Jesus asked for the coin that was used to pay the state tax, then asked whose image it bore. Most likely, it bore the image of the emperor Tiberius. One side of the coin would have deified Tiberius as as the son of the divine Augustus. The other side would have honored him as the pontifex Maximus. Or, chief priest of Roman polytheism, which is to say that the two sides of the coin celebrated Tiberius's absolute religious and civil authority. To a nationalistic Jew who confessed a radical monotheism, such a graven image was religiously offensive and politically humiliating. Certainly, much of the crowd would have been repulsed at the political, religious, and economic implications of paying a tax to a pagan god. So how would Jesus respond to this lose-lose proposition? He gave an enigmatic answer. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. In other words, he evaded their trap with a dismissive shrug. If the coin belongs to Caesar, let him have it. So what? It's only money. But then he turned the tables and asked them, But what do you owe to God? There's something more important than my economic relationship to the government my existential relationship with God. On that ancient coin was an image of Caesar, and merely money is owed to him. On the other hand, and far more importantly, every human being bears the image of God, implying that I render to God wholly and without condition my entire self. In conclusion, Pay your taxes to Caesar, but give yourself to God. The second question comes in the very next story in Luke chapter 20, verse 33. Is there sex in heaven? This question is from the Sadducees, the rivals of the Pharisees who after their own humiliation were no doubt eager to see what happened to their opponents. This too is a duplicitous question because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. For them only the Pentateuch was authoritative and in their view Moses did not affirm the afterlife. For the Sadducees you only live on in your lineage. No descendants means no future existence. To trap Jesus, to see if he would contradict their interpretation of Moses, they posed a bizarre hypothetical. If seven brothers all had the same wife out of obedience to the Mosaic law about widows in Deuteronomy 25, and none of them produced a child despite all that sex At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Will there be sex in heaven so they can fulfill the Mosaic law and continue their lineage? And if so, which one of the seven brothers will do the deed? This has to be terribly awkward. Jesus responds, Just as there's something more important than taxes, there's something more important than sex. You're mistaken about Moses. The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. The Sadducees are wrong to deny the resurrection. If they really knew their Moses, they'd understand the implications of the story about the burning bush. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living for to him all are alive. This was no academic debate for Jesus. He was living out his last days in Jerusalem, trusting his own life and death to the God of Moses. After the tax question, Luke says that, they were unable to trap Jesus in what he had said there in public and astonished by his answer, they became quiet. Likewise, after the sex question, Luke writes, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Whether it's death and taxes or sex and marriage, the Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 14, verses 7 to 9. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the dead and the living. For books this week I review a title called Beyond War, Reimagining American Influence in a New Middle East. The author is David Rohde, New York Viking 2013, 221 pages. David Rohde won two Pulitzer Prizes during his 10 years of reporting from the Middle East. But he hasn't been back there since 2009. That's because he was kidnapped by the Taliban along with two Afghan colleagues in 2008 and held captive for seven months. It's a story he tells with his wife in the book A Rope and a Prayer. He's an expert on the region, but even so, it's a rough neighborhood with no easy answers. In the first half of his book, Rohde covers familiar but troubling territory. America's debacles in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. Our problems in these places go far beyond the liberal blame of the Bush administration. A revealing chapter on Richard Holbrook, one of our country's best envoys to global hotspots, shows how complicated these places are. And President Obama, well, between 2009 and 2012, he ordered at least 290 drone strikes, six times as many as the 44 that Bush ordered. Drones kill innocent civilians, violate a nation's sovereignty and, in effect, conduct an undeclared war. The wholesale use of contractors is also a glaring problem in Rohde's view. Countries in the Middle East have become deeply suspicious of American intentions. Our military answer for every problem has not worked. So in the last half of his book, Rhodey turns to Turkey, Tunisia, Libya, and Egypt to commend what he calls a third way between American militarism and Islamic militants. What most people in the Middle East want, he says, is a way forward that is both Muslim and modern. They want our technology, trade, education, and investment. Identifying and supporting moderate Arabs is our most potent weapon, not more military might. Of course, a core problem is Washington itself and the way it does business. We'll have to reform ourselves before we can hope for reform overseas. The Middle East is a volatile region that's undergoing radical changes. The cover of Rohde's book pictures a man in traditional garb on a camel, talking on his cell phone. And even a current book like this can't keep pace with events, like Morsi's ouster in Egypt, and Assad's gassing of his own Syrian citizens, neither of which are mentioned, or could be mentioned, in Rohde's book. But this much seems clear, the old military ways aren't working. Rhodey's proposed third way offers better alternatives. Once again, David Rhodey, Beyond War, reimagining American influence in a new Middle East, speaking of the Middle East, for film this week, I review a new movie from Afghanistan. It's called The Patient's Stone. Somewhere in a war-torn village in the Middle East, we're never told exactly where, a young woman keeps vigil over her husband, who's in a coma, after taking a bullet to the neck in an argument about male honor. The husband becomes her patience stone. That is, in Persian mythology, a magical black stone that absorbs the plight of those who confide in it. She pours out her anger, resentments, and secrets to her mute husband in ways she never could if she was conscious. This setup provides the director, Atik Rahimi, a French-Afghan a French writer and filmmaker, the occasion to explore Muslim gender roles. The young woman's aunt remarks, those who don't know how to make love make war. Male sexual repression is the cause of many Middle Eastern problems in this movie. The wife and her aunt recount family stories of sexual abuse. The movie is based upon Rahimi's novel of the same name, which won the 2008 Goncourt Prize, the most prestigious book award in France, and which has been translated into 33 languages. This film is in Persian with English subtitles. Once again, The Patience Stone. For Poetry this week, we've posted a prayer that's attributed to St. Ambrose, the famous Bishop of Milan, who lived from 340 to 397. Lord Jesus Christ, you are for me medicine when I am sick. You are my strength when I need help. You are life itself when I fear death. You are the way when I long for heaven. You are light when all is dark. You are my food when I need nourishment. (coughs) Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November the 10th, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.